I have to tell you that I wouldn't be here happy, healthy, and wiser for it if it weren't for the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor. And I'm going to read to you from their website, their mission statement about who they are and what they do. Nutrition is one of the most powerful things that can create or diminish your health and your happiness. We at the Nutritional Healing Center have committed ourselves to learn and share every aspect of this field to best help our patients. We have put together a team of practitioners from many different modalities and backgrounds to become the most skilled practice, we believe, anywhere in the world. We've gone back to basics and studied about whole food supplements for decades and even centuries. We believe it is imperative in finding the why for your health struggles and helping us together to bring you back to your desired health. The Nutritional Healing Center was started in 2000 by Darren Schmidt, D.C. He knew that there were multiple elements to helping people and started his quest to not just treat the symptom, but to find the cause and later discovered the mechanism. His discoveries have enabled the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor to help thousands of people in every continent in the world over the phone with our long distance patient program and by seeing people personally in our office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Those patients have been helped with hormone problems, digestive issues, and many other chronic health conditions, all done with our well-proven holistic approach, healthcare as Mother Nature intended. You can reach the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor, 734-302-7575, and their email is info at thenhcaa.com. That's the NHCAA.com. They're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner. And I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits, and this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me, and then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk, let's share information, let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's our Stay Well, Play Well platform, and it's Season 2, Episode 21. I'm so excited to cover the topic of food and nutrition. I'll tell you about my journey with nutrition, and I have a conversation especially for flute students with passionate foodie and brilliant flutist and administrator Julie Kim Walker. Julie is the Associate Professor of Flute at Texas A&M University in Commerce, Texas. A native Houstonian, Julie remains an active performer and pedagogue in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Our producers, Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sudkey, 
both agreed that Julie is the best guest to discuss food since her social media accounts are all about her journeys and discoveries surrounding flute and food. I was Julie's guest back in 2016 at her Texas Summer Flute Symposium, and she and I performed the popular duo for flute and piano called Maya. It's composed by Ian Clark, and here we are performing live with pianist Diane Frazier. You'll hear excerpts throughout the episode. Welcome into Porter Flute Pod. Take a seat at the table for our feast of knowledge. I'm so glad you're here. The body is a miracle. It's a complicated yet simple thing. It is the home to our mind and our soul, and it will do anything we need it to do with a little willpower. When I came to the realization that my body was not my mind, I was in my 20s. I realized my body would do exactly what I asked it to do when I gave it different foods, and it would react differently in each situation. So by the time I hit my 40s, I began two things, training, and I became an athlete in my head, not in front of people, just in my head so I could get through the lemons that life was giving me. So I began began training in 2006 and I began going to a nutritionist in 2010. I wanted answers and I realized my body could give me messages. The body's trying to tell you things when it gives you messages. So after going to the nutritionist, I was able to deal with my mind, my mental health, and my soul. And it was honest and truthful. I was feeding my body what it needed and not what my mind was telling it to eat. My nutritionist is at the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor. Her name is Dr. Amanda Childress. She is a licensed pharmacist who now uses nutrition response testing in her new profession of holistic pharmacist. So nutrition response testing we do, uh, you might call it muscle testing with the arm. Dr. Childress went to James Madison and then Shenandoah. Um, She practiced traditional drug-centered retail pharmacy for three years before changing her focus to a holistic non-drug approach. Her firsthand knowledge of the damage done by our modern drug-focused healthcare system led her to nutrition and the solutions provided by Mother Nature. Unable to continue watching patients of all ages get worse the longer they took prescriptions, she walked away from a successful career as a retail pharmacist. Knowing there was a better road to health, Dr. Amanda joined the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor in 2010 as a patient advocate and doctor's assistant. She's now fully certified in nutrition response testing and has completed her advanced clinical training. I was one of her very first patients and she helped me slowly heal my gut. Uh, She made me understand immediately that my nervous system was on overdrive. They provided me with chiropractic when I needed it, kinesiology when I needed it. I could shop the supplements right there in the office 
that I was tested for. The supplements have gotten me through healing my sinuses, digestive issues, the IT band, you know, hips, broken bones, jet lag, deep scar tissue from an operation when I was five. And I have to say this kind of healing nutritionally has healed my heart and my mind. I feel better. I've kept my weight off as I have aged. And everybody, that's hard. (laughs) That's hard for everyone. So that's just a window into how I know what I know now. And the studies are coming in every day that we are what we eat. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I can't think of a better person to have here talking and just, you know, gossiping about recipes and flute. And so welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me today. I'm very excited to talk to you about food. So I think it all comes from, you know, my upbringing. I actually grew up in a very Korean culture and my parents only fed me Korean food growing up. Um, So as I got older, um, it wasn't really until college that I started exploring other American foods. I mean, obviously I would eat the cafeteria lunches at school, um, but just kind of getting out of that everyday lunch um, meals. And I think over time, I just grew an affinity for trying new things, new cultures, new uh, foods, um, traveling, And now I I really enjoy that part of my life and I look forward to it. So, and then of course the cooking aspect of it is actually quite therapeutic as well. I have observed, you know, my mom and my grandma cook, but there aren't really any written recipes. So it's all by, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And there's not even measurement system, you know, it's by what they see, what they've learned and what they taste. I remember distinctly being at a Korean flute camp in Courchevel, France, and all the teachers uh, were Korean. I was the guest, right? So I went to one of the apartments at the end of the day, and I asked, can I help you cook? And they said, of course. So when I went to take the knife, I was about to treat the garlic in not such a good way. I was going to smush it, and then I was going to chop it up. Nope, they they showed me the beautiful way to treat this gorgeous clove of garlic. And to this day, <laughs> I look at the garlic clove, and I, and I look at its beauty, and I get a lot more, I think, of the garlic out of it rather than smushing it. And so <laughs> is that kind of the Am I getting at the right feel, the the right, you know, sentiment to this cooking? It's It's got to be not just um, by sight and by taste, but there's a lot of respect for the ingredients and yes, the treatment. I, I think that's very important in Korean cuisine. My mother was British and she grew up during World War II and everything was scarcity for her. She lived through the dole as a kid, uh, so uh, she would save everything and uh, ask us all to be aware of saving, you know, especially when it came to food. She learned things about grocery stores, but she didn't really learn thing about anything or teach me much about the ingredients. 
And a lot of things, Julie, were out of cans and boxes because when she grew up, the farm to table was fine and there it was. But then refrigeration comes along and processed food comes along and ease comes along. And oh my gosh, you could just open a box. And I think she fell for that in the 50s and 60s. And so by the 70s, I was raised with cans and boxes as food. And when someone presented us with a chicken breast and a side of vegetables and a beautiful mold of rice, it was actually super special. You know, there is a book called In Defense of British Cooking, because British cooking is notoriously bad. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yes. I didn't know that book existed. (laughs) Yes. So there are some great recipes, but it's all like potatoes, you know, lamb. Uh, It's very deep and rich with butter and and, and lots of, um, you know, beer and bourbon and, you know, (laughs) grains. And so... um, the vegetables also are hearty vegetables, right? So I, I grew up with the with this cabbage, uh, beans on toast, uh, things like that. What did you grow up with? So most of Korean food is fresh and pickled. So kimchi is one of the staples. And of course, now it's, you know, most people know what it is. But growing up, that was my everyday. Like I had rice and kimchi as part of my, you know, daily meal. And um, fermentation is a huge part of um, our food. And so I think that also goes back to the whole idea of preservation. So lots of pickled veggies, fresh meats. When I went to college, it was quite the opposite. You know, a lot of that food is processed. And actually, I had some issues with the food because I was so used to eating fresh foods growing up, freshly prepared. And then I went to college and it was mostly processed foods. So I went through a time, maybe two or three years, where I had some issues, digestive issues, because of that changeover. For and I sure. didn't, and I didn't realize that until much later <laughs> that that was what it was going on. I thought it was maybe just stress, or you know, but I think it's a combination of you know college stress, but also the change in the diet, drastic oh, it, change. It will affect your skin, mm-hmm. your sleeping your relationships, you think you're depressed and you're not a depressive person. It's your diet. Yes. You know, diet is so important. What I want to stress is that when you eat something, it changes immediately, even as you chew. It is not that same thing. It's not the ice cream cone anymore. <laughs> that ice cream cone has hit your bloodstream. It has hit enzymes and it is changing chemically like you wouldn't believe. And it is changing into fat. And it your body's saying, wow, this is great, but I have to process all this stuff. And so when you're belching and burping and trying to talk at the same time and, you know, where is this uh, blemish coming from and why am I farting all the time and all this <laughs> stuff, it's your diet. Yes, it is. So you were raised on this fantastic diet, and you go to UT Austin. I'm telling you, these these school cafeterias, they mean well, but all the 
food is from commercial sources. So they outsource all of the Sara Lee and the Entenmann's and the, you know, Snickers bars, and then they come loaded, and who knows how old they are, right? And then they get loaded on a truck. God forbid you buy something from a snack machine because you don't know how old that is. Right. But um, I remember at Juilliard uh, having the obligatory bran muffin and yogurt and wondering why I kept gaining weight. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was that was fun. The walk in New York City helped. Did you walk in Austin? Were you walking to school? Yes, walking from the dorm to the music building was about 15 minutes every day. So okay. that was good. Right? I think that's also good. But students don't understand really, um, and that's who we're talking to at this segment in the podcast, these students who are eating out of cans and boxes. So the first time I tried to cook something, I was in the Atlanta Symphony. So that puts me at probably age 26. So you're thinking, Amy, how did you eat during Juilliard? Well, I had a one burner electric stove. Think of a complete square with a burner. You plug it in. And I was making grilled cheese. I was making uh, ramen. I was making oatmeal. And I was making French toast. A lot of French toast. And then I'd go out for Chinese food. And, um, yeah, because there was one every other block in Manhattan. So I had Chinese food, and then I discovered black beans and rice, also a terrible thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So I was just carb-loading and carb-loading and not knowing how to cook meat. And that, I think, was my downfall. So by the age of, oh, my I think I was 25, 26. I, I was the highest weight I could have ever been. In our day, you went to the aerobics class. So you get to an aerobics class, but still, I didn't know how to eat. Did you did you know how to eat in college? So my freshman year, I was in the dorm, so I only ate dorm food. And luckily, after my freshman year, I was able to get my own apartment. So for the next three years of college, I had an apartment with a kitchen, and I did not opt into getting, uh, you know, a small meal plan to eat on campus. Um, But the great thing was my parents were only two and a half hours away. And so they would come to all of my concerts, uh, whether it be on a Wednesday night or Monday night or Friday night. And every time they came, they brought an icebox full of homemade, fresh Korean food. And they do that to this day when they come visit me here in Dallas. So I'm very lucky to have had that. And so even though I wasn't preparing the food, I would have fresh prepared food that I could freeze and then thaw and then cook. And most of it was very easy to cook. You know, it was just like Korean barbecue, you know, you freeze it and then you thaw it and then you just cook it on a stove. And then, of course, the staple that all Koreans have and probably all Asians have a rice cooker. So I always had a rice cooker. So rice was super easy to make. So basically, when I was able to have this Korean food, uh, it was probably about once a month, I would have a fresh delivery from my parents. And so I look back and say, wow, very, very lucky to have that. And even to this day, they do it. So I think part of that is cultural, because in, in Korean culture, we're not a super affectionate, outwardly affectionate culture. But Um, in in the culture, we show affection and love through food and gifts. Um, so food is one of the biggest things 
in um, my upbringing that I guess showed us affection from my parents. From right. Friends. So that's, that's what you're passing down to your students instead of recipes. Yes, exactly. So you make bread for them. I do. So during the quarantine, I decided to try the sourdough starter. So I started feeding my sourdough once a week and looking up different recipes to see what would work. And I kind of did a combination of a couple different recipes and came up with my own recipe. Um, But it has been really entertaining for me because I'm actually extroverted and not being able to go see friends and go out to eat. So the sourdough starter kept me entertained all throughout since last March. And I've kept it alive for over a year now. And so when the fall semester hit, I, by that time I had mastered my recipe. And so I wanted to show some way that we can still engage the students in a very safe way. So we did outdoor studio classes and I would cook sourdough bread or bake sourdough bread and slice it up in advance. And we would have a studio class outdoors and I would distribute sourdough bread. That's fabulous. So I found some really great recipes in the crock pot, which if you're busy, if you're, you know, teaching a full day and, you know, commuting, my husband and I both commute an hour and a half each way to work. So crock pot is a really great way to just prepare everything, stick it in the crock pot and let it slow cook for eight hours. So when you come home, it's ready. That's so easy. And people could ask their parents for their old crock pot, right? Take it to college with you. Instead of instead of the one burner electric (laughs) (laughs) plug in stove that I had. Food should actually be nourishing and not your therapy. Um, I I used to have a big problem with Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream in college. If there were tears, it was accompanied with a pint of ice cream. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that I had to train myself to stop looking for the panacea in a pint of ice cream because, wow, it made me gain a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever find that food you had to change your, your shift, your mindset about food and what it was doing for you? I think for the most part, food has always been, again, not a therapy, but the process of making food is therapeutic and then eating is enjoyable. But I wouldn't say it was, I never, you know, I actually didn't eat sweets until I got to college. And when I got to college and I started, like people started having desserts after their meals, I could only take one bite, and I was like, this is too sweet. Exactly. Dessert, then, it should not be a reward. I don't know where that came from. All of a sudden, there's some big heap of chocolate on top of all that food. Yeah. And then the other thing is with the processed foods, there's so much sodium. And so to my taste buds, everything was salty. And then when my aunts and uncles came and visited from Korea, they couldn't eat any, anything American because it was just too salty for them. 
So I think sodium is also, it's in a lot of processed foods that we have to be careful um, with. But yes, the, the sugar was never part of my diet until I got to college and started experiencing, oh, Americans eat dessert after their meals. And you'd, That's get, right. this, <laughs> you'd get this huge slice of pie and how do you eat the whole thing? I can only have one or two bites. That's right. And in the South, they have multiple desserts for, you know, you can eat as much as you want, right? The whole buffet, a dessert buffet on top of the goodness you might have have consumed. It's mystifying, but we were we grew up like that. You know, uh, uh, one time I pulled up to someone who was very disagreeable in school and I looked in this person's car. And there was wrapper after wrapper after wrapper of Wendy's. Wow. And at that moment, I realized what I was dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> Not who. <laughs> Not who, but what. Mm-hmm. And is that judgmental? I, I, I just needed to get a handle on the situation, and I realized I'm just going to remember that the person isn't eating well. Right. I've always wanted to talk about heartburn because heartburn is a very kind of secretive enemy and everyone gets it from time to time. And some people even, it just makes them ill. And I have been there and I've had my gallbladder out because, and I'm not blaming the diet I grew up with, but since it included so much fat, I think my body, as healthy as it is and athletic as it it is, it just downright said no more fat. We cannot produce the bile to break down the fat. And I had I passed two gallbladder stones, uh, wow. the worst pain of my life, and twice in, in a year. And that's when the doctor said, it's coming out. So this was right before the Kobe competition. So I was healing my wow. abdomen and studying like six to eight months before the Kobe competition, which was a whole different head, right? Yeah. So they said, you know, you're going to have to cut down sugar. And you think sugar gives you heartburn? Okay, hang on. I was eating a bagel with ham and mustard. What gave me the heartburn? Pop quiz. Was it the ham? I thought it was the ham, right? You think ham, high fat. It is not the fat, guys. Guess what gave me the heartburn? The combination of a spice and the fact that that entire bagel has more sugar in it than an ice cream cone. That bagel turns itself into sugar. You're looking at a piece of bread. It is not a piece of bread. You're going to chew it. It's going to digest. And it's going to become sugar. And it's going to overload. I'm telling you, it's the worst thing. So I'm married to a certified bagel holic. He used to eat seven a day. I cut him way down. And now I make my own bagels. Bagel was a food group. In fact, when you're from Philly, it's called bagel. So, <laughs> bagels and Philly cream cheese, it's just part of the diet. Yeah. But those bagels had to go away. So, I, uh, and the last thing I'll say about heartburn is watch out for the oil. You know, you go, oh, oh, I'm going to put, I'm going to put it in olive oil and all my health problems will go away. Well, guess what? That along with oatmeal could kill you too. Now, before you think that you can't eat olive oil or oatmeal anymore, just try try going without seeing if you feel better or monitoring. Like take take some oatmeal with some maple syrup on it. That will that will send me back to bed. 
but just see if it will send you back to bed or to the toilet. But <laughs> seriously, if, but if you raise your arms and say, I feel so good. Like after when I drink my, my smoothie with my greens and my soy, my almond milk, um, I think it's super important to, to understand oils, grains, uh, flowers, they all turn themselves into other things. But when you're sticking with the main things, the meats and the fruits and the vegetables and and some of these systems where we can pickle things and mm-hmm. save, preserve, that's when you're going to get into some great eating. Don't you agree? Absolutely agree. Yes. Have you ever had heartburn? It's something no one talks about. So when I went to college and I was eating all those processed foods, all of a sudden I had heartburn, I had indigestion. And again, we just thought it was stress, but we didn't look at the the difference in diet. 18 years of my life, I've been eating fresh, um, non-processed foods. And then all of a sudden I went completely to processed foods. So of course there's going to be heartburn and indigestion and all of that so looking back I wish I had known that you know sooner rather than later so do you have any thoughts on pre-concert wives tales or rituals because I know what works for me. What So we'll start with you. What works for you? And do you have any, you know, suggestions for people? So I definitely will eat before a recital or performance um, because I feel like I need that little extra boost of energy. Uh, but how, but I'm very um, cautious to not overeat and also avoid super salty things. So a very mild dinner and uh, a small meal hour and a half before so I have enough time to digest um, and then afterwards you eat some more you celebrate <laughs> so absolutely isn't there a wives tale about a banana because it has potassium and sugar and it's got a lot of sugar so I think I'm not sure I don't eat a banana uh, regularly I might throw it in a smoothie but do you have do you carry things around with you I carry things like water a lot of water Yes, water for sure. I don't really do the bananas. I've tried it, but yeah, you're right. It has a lot of sugar and that could be not so good for performance. Um, But I think just having granola bars laying around, you know, just something to snack on um, if, if, you know, I want to snack on something. But mainly I just make sure I have water. Yeah. On the road, it can get quite difficult to eat. So I've found that the obligatory club sandwich with a side of fries is so great before the recital or the concerto that now people say, do you require anything? And you can just, turkey club is great. (laughs) (laughs) And then you eat half of it before and half of it after, and it's it's pretty easy. So that's that's my recommendation. (laughs) half a sandwich and some fries that's right and lots of water has your music influenced your cooking and has your cooking influenced your music for me the cooking's influenced the music because i can say to someone it needs more garlic or it needs a little more olive oil which means you know flexibility or sheen or whatever it means 
you know, those teachers, you remember those teachers who, who would just rub their fingers together and say, it needs a little more, you know, and, and you, you get it, right? There's right. no word accompanying this. It's just, it's whatever it is that they, they, they say, right, in cooking, and they, it needs a little more, what, a pinch of something. So that, to me, has, you know, food has influenced my teaching. How about you? So for me, it's influenced my teaching and my performing in a slightly different way. So I find cooking very therapeutic. So, you know, after a long day of working, teaching or performing, I like to come home and have a creation. So in a way, it's an artistic outlet, but also um, just a way to relax. And I think, you know, relaxing and having some downtime is so important for the next day um, to have, you know, a fresh start. So I feel like it influences me in that way. It helps me relax, you know, unwind, and then get ready for the next day. Do you listen to music while you cook? Actually, I don't listen to a lot of music. It's very interesting. Um, when I'm driving, I love silence. And me too. <laughs> so I think it's just because, you know, we're around it so much. And sometimes just having a nice, silent time to, to process our thoughts and emotions is yeah. important. So I don't know if you've felt this at times in your cooking with a certain ingredient, but I'll share my story. I quit eating white flour and replaced everything with almond flour and coconut flour and cassava flour. And Julie, I dropped so much weight so fast. I can't even tell you how good I feel without the white flour and the wheat flour. And I had no earthly idea. Now, before everybody you know, says flour is bad. It's not. It's just that when you're in your 50s, everything changes. So <laughs> it's really important to, to try new ingredients. These flowers, Julie, are so light and delicate. And now I'm working with avocado oil. I'm working with um, just so many things that when I talk to someone from South America or Mexico, they'll say, of course, the yucca plant, we've used it for thousands of years. Okay, yeah. fine. Porter just found cassava flour. <laughs> I love it. I'm making my own bagels. Oh, wow. It's incredible. So have you discovered any ingredient that, that makes you feel like, like, wow? So for a long time, I actually did go gluten-free. And so I had to discover all the like almond flours and tapioca flowers and things like that. And I would find different recipes to bake and um, cook with. So uh, I did that for about six, six or seven years. And it, it all happened because I had some reaction, skin reaction, and we couldn't figure out what it was. So I completely changed my diet and it did help um, tremendously. And um, over time, you know, I, slowly started introducing gluten back into my diet. And what I've noticed is over time, basically I can, I can still eat gluten, but I just need to be careful that I'm not eating it every day or every meal where, you know, before, I mean, if you look at ingredients, you know, in different you know boxes or different uh, recipes, there's always some sort of gluten 
um, in the recipe. And so I'm just more aware of what I choose to eat and I look at the ingredients. It doesn't necessarily have to be completely gluten-free, but I, I just am more aware now that gluten is in everything. So, Isn't it incredible? Along with sugar. Yes. Sugar is in everything. Sugar is the enemy, everyone. It is indeed the enemy. And you can get so much more sweetness from different things beyond cane sugar and, quite frankly, the beet sugar. visited several countries um, thanks to the flute and with every visit I just love immersing myself in the culture and in particularly the food and then you know you gravitate to something that you remember from your trip and it's often associated with food so then I try to replicate that when I come home and then you know just brings back nostalgia from that visit so I think it's it's all connected the food experience the performance experience in that foreign country one time in Japan the presenter took me for sushi and when I went to take my sushi and dip it into the soy sauce it was a little too long for my host and I got no soak no soak no soak And I said, what? He said, no soak in the, you you wave it maybe over the soy sauce or hardly dip, but no soak. <laughs> so last night, literally, Julie, I wanted sushi. Probably once a month I have to order sushi because no one in the family eats sushi. And so last night was my sushi night and uh, I got this variety and I'm always remembering, no soak, no <laughs> soak. <laughs> I grew up with my parents eating fresh sashimi. And I remember every time they would get a platter of fresh sashimi, I would stay away, but I would only eat the cooked shrimp and the cooked octopus. And it actually wasn't until I moved to San Francisco for a master's degree that I actually tried raw fish for the first time. And when I tried it, I was a little hesitant because I knew it was raw, but I actually really loved it. And I think being in San Francisco was really, really fresh too. So I like to tell that story because I grew up with all of that around me, but I was too afraid to try it, you know, and then it wasn't until my master's degree that I tried it. And then I think actually moving to San Francisco from Houston, which is where I'm from, I was born in, was actually such an eye-opening experience for me culturally, even though, you know, I am from Korean culture, it's just a whole different mindset you know, California versus Texas. So I actually learned a lot about different foods. I was able to try more, you know, unique foods. I think the first time I had Burmese food, Senegalese food, even Thai food, which is, you know, pretty standard dim sum, like all of these things. Um, I had so much great food in that city. And that was just a whole like overall experience, uh, a very important time in my life. So, but I definitely relate a lot of that to food. For sure. Okay, all of you listeners, 18 to 23, get out there and explore. And don't just say, I don't eat sushi. 
you know, plug your nose and throw a piece of salmon in your mouth because <laughs> it won't taste like fish. Great fish doesn't smell fishy or taste fishy. It's this luxurious, it's like if you eat steak, it's it, it's got the consistency of that. Now, then there's this zing that happens that will absolutely clear your sinuses. <laughs> Wasabi. <laughs> Right? I can only do a little wasabi. And then the cleansing of the palate afterwards is ginger. And that ginger is usually pickled, right? (laughs) So the pickled ginger uh, would translate to the sorbet between courses in French food, perhaps. Yes. Do you cook um, Tex-Mex? Do you cook Texas barbecue? Are you like completely versed in all the Texas recipes? I mean, well, okay, you don't use recipes, but the Texas tastes? I think we we like a variety of foods. So if we do barbecue, it's once every three months um, because there's a lot of preparation involved. And, you know, we like to do it where we smoke the meats. Um, overnight. And let's see, what else is Texas? Tex-Mex, of course, is definitely something um, that is pretty regular in our um, foods. But uh, I actually grew up eating more authentic Mexican food because I grew up in Houston. So the idea of Tex-Mex was, again, more college. Right. This, uh, Mexican food is more meats and, you know, fresh cilantro, onions, Pico de Gallo. Nothing like it. Oh, so beautiful. So, yeah, but we have our favorite Tex-Mex foods. Uh, We like to make enchiladas. Those are always fun to make. Tacos. (gasps) Really? (laughs) So tell me, there's soft tacos and hard tacos. And back in my day, are you ready? The tacos came in plastic and they were hard and they were in a box. Right? So you take the bag out, <laughs> you get your little taco out, and then your meat came out of a can. Oh, and you goodness. threw your meat, mm-hmm, and you threw your meat, and it came with a spice bag. And you put your spice bag in with the meat, and you cook up the meat. And you so your bagged, your canned meat would go into your <laughs> boxed taco, oh, and you'd call it dinner. This was, ni- this was 1970-something. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Tell me about how you can make tacos. So tacos here, almost always soft. So either corn tortillas or flour tortillas. In many places, you know, you can buy freshly homemade tortillas. And then for us, we cook fresh meat, whether it be ground beef or fajita meat or chicken. And I always like to do some veggies. So maybe even if it's a fajita taco, um, adding bell peppers, onions, mushrooms, zucchini, so having some veggies, but generally speaking, um, I think tacos are some sort of soft tortilla with meat. And then I love the garnishes of cilantro, onion, and pico de gallo. And then of course, there's a whole nother um, area of tacos, breakfast tacos. 
scrambled eggs and your choice of meat, um, bacon, sausage, or chorizo, which is a, a spiced uh, Mexican sausage, and um, then a salsa of your choice. some tips to everyone about how to shop for vegetables and how much because vegetables go bad right so if you are a recipe follower um, just get what you need and I think you know mushrooms obviously they come in a package so I like to when I buy a, a package of mushrooms I like to plan for two meals so that you know I will use them in, in a timely manner um, but things like zucchini and squash will last a little longer, bell peppers. But I think um, for us, we've never, besides the time we were vegetarians, we um, didn't buy veggies in bulk. We only bought what we needed for maybe the next two days. Um, of course, being a vegetarian is a little bit different because you're consuming a lot more vegetables as your main part of the meal, no protein um, meats. But um, so we typically, now that we live somewhere that, grocery stores a lot more accessible. Uh, we try to get, buy veggies every three days and plan ahead. So that way we're not spoiling leftover veggies. I also have a garden. That's awesome. We do too. And we buy the bib lettuce with the roots still on them. We eat the lettuce and throw the roots in the ground and they repurpose themselves. They grow back so it's a two for one on the lettuce. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's so great. We did um, we do red leaf lettuce every year, and so you can pick off the leaves, and they'll they'll keep producing for a little while. Um, so we just had made a salad last night with our salmon. You know, as long as you have some salt and pepper, a little olive oil, and we actually like lemon pepper. That kind of gives a little bit of a zing. So we have a, a a big container of lemon pepper. When we don't know what we want for flavor, we just throw in some lemon pepper. Um, and then we like spicy food. So we always have cayenne pepper and red crushed pepper in the pantry. And last summer, our cayenne plant produced so many peppers. We ended up drying them all and crushing them. And so we have uh, lots of fresh, freshly crushed uh, red pepper. Any any parting words of wisdom? I think the most important thing is uh, when we have other areas in our life that are nourishing to our souls and our bodies, uh, makes us a more complete person and a musician. And I think um, having time to enjoy not just being in a black practice room and practicing eight hours a day, but giving yourself time to cook and or finding those things that are therapeutic that are just going to help you reset and be better for the next day. And for me, that's definitely food. And for somebody else, it could be working out. And it's for somebody else, it could be pet therapy or gardening um, or all of the above. And I think um, it's so important for us as humans to stay balanced. Get to know your farmer's market. Get to know your health food store um, and and. 
it's not more expensive. I think it's it's good budgeting. You know, you've got your budget for the week. You go to the market. You buy your week, and then you cook it in one day, or you cook it over a couple of days. Right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I like to cook a big meal the night before and take leftovers for lunch. Absolutely, mm-hmm. husbands always love leftovers. <laughs> yes. It's so fun to see your posts um, about food and uh, along with your great love for your studio and and your festival, the Texas Summer Flute Symposium. Yes. It's just so great to watch you um, just love life in such a beautiful way. So I just thank you so much for talking to me. And helping others prepare their their dinner. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Walker. You can find Julie on Instagram and Facebook as Julie, J-U-L-E-E, Kim Walker. And she has a Wix website as well. Join us next time on Porter Flute Pod when we celebrate our final episode of Season 2 with Stephen Finley, Master Flute Maker and Finisher from the William S. Haynes Flute Company. You can find me at my new website, amyporter.com and porterflute.com. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.